You've got Ted Corliss with the Corliss Barfield Trial Group. Visit our website at www.corlissbarfield.com or more importantly, take a look at us at our YouTube channel to follow our active podcasting. Again, my name is Ted Corliss and I'm a lawyer with the Corliss Barfield Trial Group. Excited to tell you that this year I'm celebrating my 25th anniversary as a lawyer. During this upcoming year, we're going to address a lot of the history of the kinds of cases that I've handled and address some of the rip from the headlines opportunities to share our legal prowess and to update you on a lot of the interesting and important things that are going on in America. Today, I come to you with a sadness in my heart because I'm going to be addressing the recent helicopter crash that took the lives of Kobe Bryant, his daughter, as well as seven other people. But I would encourage you to look online, see the faces of these individuals. These are real people. They are not uh, just a famous basketball player. It's a father and a daughter, as well as it was another family, a mom, a dad, and a daughter whose lives were taken when the helicopter crashed in Calabasas, California. The issue that I raise to you as a lawyer is to take a look at some of the legal issues that would be associated with an event of this magnitude. And yes, it, it does move the dial that one of the individuals on the plane was valued at north of a half a billion. I say that because any individual that would be worth the enormous value and success financially that Mr. Bryant had in addition, obviously, to him leaving behind three children as well as his wife. The significance of that amount of money means that his business existence in many fronts probably depended heavily upon his existence, his continued support and promotion of those. So this will be an investigation like there may not have been in the past. Here's the primary issue that we're going to hear mostly about. The cause of the crash right now has not yet been published. Uh, by the way, the, the craft that we're talking about is an S-76 helicopter. This particular helicopter was one of 875 produced since 1977. My understanding is this particular helicopter, this specific S-76, was constructed in 1980. Unfortunately, if you got the 1980 model, you didn't get any form of terrain mapping system that is very common on newly produced helicopters. I mean, think about anything that you may have owned in 1980, what it looked like, and now ask yourself, what does it look like in the year 2020? I bet you it's a little bit different. I bet it's made of different materials, I bet it's been constructed in a different format, and it has a technical edge that probably was not even conceivable in 1980. There isn't a lot of information out specifically, although the manufacturer of the Sikorsky S76 is a company you might be familiar with called Lockheed Martin. They build spaceships, airplanes, helicopters. Hell, I bet they grow toothbrushes somewhere. So we're talking about a company with enormous wealth and power behind it. We have an individual, we have, a, we have three families plus that have been impacted by this crash. And so what is the history of this particular aircraft? Pretty easily and pretty fast, I was able to find another crash of an S-76 that just occurred in 2017. It was in Istanbul, Turkey. 
Now, you might think Turkey can be kind of an unstable place. Was it damaged or shot down? No. The Istanbul crash in 2017 occurred because of foggy conditions. The two pilots that were flying that S-76 happened to miss a bridge that was covered in fog. And uh, that, of course, did not go well for anyone on board. Is Does this mean that the S-76 is a defective aircraft? I am not offering an opinion about that. And that would be beyond my scope as a lawyer. But as a lawyer, I can tell you, I'm going to want to know who manufactured it. Well, we know it's Lockheed Martin. What was the state of that aircraft in on the morning where it took off? When it took off, uh, there is now a video that has been produced just in the last few hours of it taking off from its original location and heading toward Calabasas. So that's the last time the craft was seen. Now, when it shows back up near the crash site, the data so far reflects that it has gone up from 1,200 feet to over 2,000 feet and then made a rapid ascent downward until it crashed into a hillside. The photographs indicate that the crash location put it approximately 20 to 30 feet below the ridge line, which means that the pilot either must have thought he could make the hill or he lost control and wasn't able to pull back to make it over the top of the hill. At the time the aircraft, the helicopter, hit the wall, essentially, the hill, the aircraft was traveling more than 160 knots. Uh, that's uh, air travel speak, but in on the ground, that would be approximately 185 miles per hour. That's likely why after the crash, there was an enormous flame, there was a brush fire, which is the reason the original accident was called in, was because of that. And so putting this back into the context of we're talking lawyerly today, the issue is I want to know who manufactured it and I want to know what condition it was in. So whoever was responsible for the continued use of that helicopter immediately prior to the accident is probably speaking to a good lawyer this morning. Okay, so what do, what do we know about who owned the helicopter? The helicopter was not expressly owned by Kobe Bryant. It, if you go online and look up the ownership credentials on the wing of the helicopter, it's not going to say Kobe Bryant's aircraft. Instead, it's in the name of a holding company. And the holding company probably would have had to have some crazy amount of insurance if you're going to put a guy like Kobe Bryant in the passenger seat, in the back seat of this helicopter. And so there are insurance companies right now that are scrambling to figure out what their potential liability is just due to the fact that Kobe Bryant was on it and that someone insured it. The other thing we want to find out about is, again, back to the helicopter itself. Most of the time when we're talking about aircraft or any kind of extremely sophisticated equipment like this that affects human life, it's heavily, heavily regulated. And in this situation, their United States Transportation Board, you've got all of these federal agencies now that are all swarming. But my understanding is that the, they did such a thorough job in the 36 hours immediately after the crash that the federal authorities have now 
removed all of the aircraft to an undisclosed location where they're going to be studying it, and now they turn the scene back over to the local personnel. The local law enforcement have invoked essentially a perimeter that you are not permitted to go to. Now, that doesn't mean that a lot of those people in that community have not moved to that location. I don't know whether to grieve or look for souvenirs. I don't know. But if you get caught within that perimeter, the California law enforcement is going to have something to say about it, and you're going to probably be arrested. I would stay away. There's plenty of data online that you can see various videos that have been made and published by different people. All right. Now, whenever you have an automobile accident, there's a variety of legal and liability issues that exist. Who owns the car? Who's driving the car? Well, if you're a passenger in the car, you're not limited in terms of who you can go after. There is a possibility here that the surviving families of everyone on the plane is going to want the owner of that aircraft to answer for the accident. That means that there could be legal battles now that occur not just between the group itself against the, against the pilot or against the manufacturer of the plane, but it also is that the members of the, you know, the people that had died in the back seat would have claims against the owner. Same thing with an automobile. And in this context, that's just going to get even more complicated because I suspect whoever owned the helicopter was probably owned by somebody else and they were owned by somebody else. And so that's when the lawyers get busy. The issue that I would always encourage people to do is to make informed decisions about things that they do that are risky. People ask me about private aircraft, and I am not a fan. I recall a very good friend of mine who has the financial resources to own an aircraft but chooses not to. I think that's the coolest thing to be. Hey, man, I could own an aircraft, but I choose not to. That's because if you look at the numbers on private aircraft versus public aircraft, we live in a big bubble when it comes to commercial aircraft because planes in America do not crash, and that's a fantastic thing. But if you start looking around at the total number of smaller aircraft, including helicopters like the S-76, you're going to see a far greater percentage of people crashing those vehicles. And therefore, you won't see too many people that look like me and happen to be me on private aircraft. And therefore, I would say make an informed decision, even when you happen to be hanging out with celebrities that have perhaps more persuasiveness over the pilot. Now, to, to kind of round things off with the crash here, my understanding was the pilot was exemplary, that he had calculated more than 8,500 hours on an aircraft like this that apparently is very sophisticated to fly, especially given the age of the aircraft. I think I have to believe, especially in the world we live in these last couple of years, that recently produced aircraft might have been a preferred vehicle as opposed to one that has no way to address dr dramatic changes in the terrain that they most commonly fly in. But again, if you take a look at the website for Lockheed Martin, you'll see immediately on the cover page them giving you their position on so far what they know and what their feelings about this are. I'd encourage you to read it so that you see the full story associated with this. 
we enjoy the opportunity to bring our clients, our friends, our community up to date on the issues that are ripped from the headlines and so they can understand more about what our mission is. Again, my name is Ted Corliss. I'm a lawyer with the Corliss Barfield Trial Group. Take a look at our YouTube channel and the full spectrum of social media out there to find more about what we do and how we might be able to help you. My name is Ted Corliss. Be well.